This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Nigel Palmer, author of The Regenerative Grower's Guide to Garden Amendments. In our conversation, which begins with his biography, he shares his inspiration from the work of John Kemp and Dan Kittredge, along with the Jadam Korean farming method, to create garden amendments at home from hyper-local sources. Eggshells and bones from his kitchen, scraps and remnants from the garden, and leaf mold from the forest floor. Using ferments, tinctures, and extracts, he creates the foliar sprays, fertilizers, and soil drenches to grow disease and pest-resistant plants and nutrient-dense food without the need for commercial chemical fertilizers, pesticides, or fungicides. Rich with examples from his own garden, Nigel's approach favors biology over technology to reduce the cost of gardening, improve his local soil, and the quality of his fruits and vegetables. Enjoy this conversation with Nigel, and I'll join you again after. Uh, So my background is that of an aerospace engineer. I've worked as an aerospace engineer for 36 years and just recently retired from that profession. I was involved in solving uh, very technical problems and really enjoyed doing that, by the way. As far as growing food goes, I've had a garden for most of my life, and we have grown food basically as a hobby back when we were younger. But as I got older, I realized that uh, growing food is really the only healthcare program that makes any sense in this part of the world these days. Food is medicine, and if you want good medicine, you've got to grow good food. And if you want to grow good food, you need to have a healthy soil ecology in order to do so. So uh, my wife and I started growing garlic, and uh, quickly we had a year's supply of garlic. Then we started growing fruit, and all of a sudden we've got a year's worth of fruit, then potatoes, then on it went. And as we grew these things, it became clear that the soil was being depleted, and we needed ways to regenerate the soil uh, and get it into a state where we could grow high-quality food and not have the demise of certain crops uh, as they grew in our gardens. And this is where I ran into Dan and John. And they basically, John sent me into the stratosphere when I heard him first speak at Acres 10 years ago or something like that. And I quickly realized how important minerals were, but I didn't want to buy anything. I thought buying things at a store was not sustainable. And also, you never really know what's in those packages and what was used to make them. And it became clear to me that indigenous cultures for millennia had been growing high quality food. In fact, if you're going to sustain a a civilization for a long period of time, you need to be able to grow high quality food on the same land for many, many years. And so it thought came to me that, well, what did these people do in order to do that? And, And how do rainforests put this lush, beautiful ecology together and maintain it? And the the woods of New England, the the savannas of the Midwest, and and all of these different ecosystems. And so I embarked on a journey to try and find indigenous ways of improving the soil and growing high-quality crops. And I I started rotting weeds in buckets, and it didn't seem to bother me. It, It smelled really, really bad. But plants don't have odiferous capabilities, and they didn't seem to mind either. And uh, so then it grew into a search to try and figure out what these 
indigenous cultures had had done. And uh, some Korean natural farming books popped up that uh, really showed some insights into mineralization and uh, stimulating the ecology of the soil. And those pretty well sent me off to the races. And my wife uh, started a school called the Institute of Sustainable Nutrition. And she asked me to be uh, the garden instructor for this program. So I agreed and I I thought I'd put in a class or two throughout the year-long program. But it quickly became clear that there was a desire for this information. And I had tapped into a lot of information. And so I started teaching the program and putting these recipes together and teaching people about these recipes. And it wasn't long before I realized how important these recipes really were and how empowering these recipes would be for anybody that wanted to grow food, whether it's a home gardener or a a farmer or anybody. And so I thought that it was very, very important to document these recipes and get them into a book and get them out into mainstream where people could empower themselves to grow high quality food with a plant model that explained why and the recipes, the simple recipes needed to actually accomplish the task. And you detail that in your book, which I like because you lay out part of your story, along with a great foreword by John Kempf, who was recently on the show. There's also an article by your wife, Joan, laying out more details about the importance of these methods. And then you go through and half the book is the science of how all this works, what the breakdown is in the soil, how we can calculate what our mineral needs are. And then you go into the second half of the book, which is just recipe after recipe after recipe, along with analysis of how to create these different amendments through extracts, tinctures, and ferments. In putting this together, and those recipes that you developed, were you pulling from all of these natural farming books you were reading from Korea? Or was this through experimentation of what you were finding from American speakers and authors, combined with what you had on hand? Really, what were you building on to develop this research? One of the things that is really cool about gardening in general, and and this whole way of thinking, is that it's becoming part of the ecosystem yourself. And when, when one starts uh, making amendments, whether it's simply putting weeds in water or extracting uh, minerals from bones or shells using vinegar or fermenting plants, whatever it is, and having your hands in the soil and, and watching the change in the pollinators, it quickly becomes clear that y- you are one with the ecosystem. And all of a sudden, things become intuitive. And I think that's the, one, one of the coolest lessons for me is just realizing how intuitive growing food is. And it makes no sense to go and, and buy something at a store. It makes no sense. Certainly, it makes no sense to kill anything. I mean, once you realize that you need a thriving ecology in the soil to do any of this kind of work, then the whole idea of a pesticide or an herbicide or a fungicide, where you're actually trying to target killing something in the soil becomes absurd because when you target something to kill, in fact, you're killing all kinds of different things. We are uh, no surgeons when we uh, use these sorts of products in the soil. And so it becomes clear that that's not the way to do it. And there's got to be another way. So it's really intuition that has led me down this path. And while I search for different things to try and do, It's the intuition that says, yes, feeding the soil biology makes sense. For instance, I had leaf curl on a peach tree recently. And you go online and and ask, well, what do I do about the leaf curl on my peach tree? 
And the overwhelming response is copper sulfate or some other fungicide in order to kill the, the fungus on the, on the leaf. So I totally rejected that. And so I made up a batch of leaf mold biology with the idea if I saturate the leaves of the tree with a ubiquitous quantity of bacteria, fungi, and archaea, then the fungus that's on the tree will have to compete with that rather than just run free. So I did that, and then I followed that up with uh, an amendment, a mineral amendment, a broad-spectrum mineral amendment. I'm not quite sure what I used at this time, but it was probably something like fermented plant juice of stinging nettle, which has an amazing complement of, of uh, all, almost all of the minerals one might need. And I was able to turn the tree around and eliminate the, the leaf curl. So rejecting the ideas of you have to kill something to make it better. And by the way, when you're doing that, you're killing all, all, all sorts of other things. The whole intuitive idea of bringing large amounts of biology to the situation to make the existing biology compete and then providing the minerals that are needed by the tree so that it can build up its own immune system and its own defenses makes intuitive sense. You feed them well. You take care of them by being part of the ecosystem. You're seeing that leaf curl early and can then provide an active intervention. That in turn then provides greater health for the plant and nutrition in the food you're growing? Absolutely. And it's the same thing with uh, uh, my cucumbers this year, for instance. I had these beautiful cucumber plants and they were flowering to beat the drum. And after a few days, I realized, well, there's no cucumbers. What, what's going on here? One quickly recognizes that this is a phosphorus deficiency. And so I went into a person could go open up my book and look at the mineral analysis that I did on the different amendments in the back of the book. And you see that comfrey has an extremely high phosphorus content. So you could have or make uh, fermented plant use of comfrey. Also, simply putting eggshells in vinegar and extracting the, uh, the minerals in there, that, that, that gives you more of a calcium product. But if you take bones, for instance, and you use the bones from a cow, uh, you get a very high phosphorus content. And so looking in the book, I, I realized um, these are products that I have on the shelf that I've done the analysis on. They are high in phosphorus. And so I applied the fermented uh, plant juice and the uh, cow bone vinegar extraction to my cucumbers. I did it one day. I waited a day. I did it a second day. And all of a sudden, the cucumbers are just coming out to beat the band. So again, it's, it's observing what's going on and recognizing the phase of the plant and then using these very simple recipes that are shelf-stable and, and, and will be available for a very long time in very, very small doses. Uh, in, in this case, I used uh, one part per thousand of the two products and uh, achieving just tremendous results. And when you were developing these ideas and experimenting in the garden, what were some of the things that surprised you in this experience? After having, as I understand it, gardened traditionally and chemically for a number of years, and then had a change in perspective, how did your thoughts change in this process? Yeah. Um, well, uh, I was more of an organic by neglect guy rather than a chemical guy. I've never added chemicals to anything. I always thought chemicals were silly. But by only using horse manure and cow manure and chicken manure and compost, there certainly was not the mineral content or necessarily the high bio biological content in my gardens. And 
As I grow crops for years, uh, for instance, all of a sudden, the Brussels sprouts, they just don't grow as well as they used to. And this is a mineral problem. But what surprised me, I think, more than anything else, let's see a couple things. Uh, first of all, why isn't this information readily available? Why are we so in the dark relative to these fundamental intuitive ideas about growing food? I think that was the thing that really surprised me the most. And then the second thing is, why is it so difficult to find this information? And then once you start applying these things, I think the, the, the most fascinating and beautiful thing about it all is I'm not necessarily just getting a, a, a better tomato or a better potato or a better peach. The entire ecosystem in my garden area is just exploding with pollinators and diversity. Watching the, the, the frogs and the snakes and the toads all of a sudden increase, seeing pollinators on plants that I've never seen before, and a lot of them, and just this general increase in beauty and diversity of the ecosystem, I think has been the, one of the most wonderful surprises that we've seen here. So even though you were doing organic gardening by neglect, making these changes, increasing the mineralization and overall health of your plants, you're seeing a return in your local ecosystem? Uh, never mind a return, uh, an abundance in the ecosystem. The ecosystem is, is thriving like it never has before. And also things uh, like, so for instance, garlic, uh, we've been growing our own, our own garlic for over 20 years. And um, there was a time where the, the, uh, the size of the bulbs and the uh, susceptibility to some sort of pathogens was increasing in the garlic. And that was right about the time where I really started to uh, implement these sorts of ideas. And since then, all of those things have been eradicated. And also the types and varieties of things that grow well in the garden now. And, and of, of course, the size of them and the, the bounty of them and things like that. With that size and bounty, one of the things you touch on in your book is the use of a refractometer to test these kinds of changes. And that's something I spoke with Dan Kittredge about several years ago. And I'll make sure to link to that interview about nutrient density. But I was wondering if you could speak to what changes you noticed in this process and how the refractometer and um, this testing help provide greater credence to the work that you're doing. So the, the, using a refractometer, the refractometer is a relatively crude instrument but it's extremely simple and it's, it's available. It's something that anybody can pick up for 30, 40 bucks or something like that. And it gives an indication of what's going on. One of the first things that uh, I used a refractometer for was to measure the refractive index of my blueberries and raspberries throughout a day. Uh, so I'd go out and start at eight o'clock in the morning and every couple of hours I'd measure the refractive index of uh, maybe 10 leaves on four or five different kinds of plants. And what I noticed was that the refractive index really didn't change throughout the day. And of course it should, as photosynthesis kicks in, uh, you should get an increase in refractive index. And this was an indication that I had a, a, a lack of boron uh, in my soil. And sure enough, when I did a soil test, that was the case, I did have a lack of boron. And so um, these are the kinds of things that uh, that can help with. The other thing is using it for long-term measurements and just a general indicator. I really enjoy tomatoes. There's, there's nothing like a brandywine tomato, in my opinion, especially when you get a brandywine that starts brixing higher than three and four and five. You get into the seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven of a really big brandywine tomato, and you're, you're talking the real thing here. 
And so um, monitoring the refractive index of my tomatoes does two things for me. One, it shows me that I'm making henway in the increase in the, the nutrient density of the tomato, but it also allows me to select which seeds I save uh, for the following year. So both uh, um, using the refractometer as, a, uh, as an indicator, again, a very gross top-level indicator of nutrient density, and also it's a fun toy. I, I see it as a fun toy, and I see it as a way uh, in training programs and, and educational programs to bring awareness to people of the fact that, well, you know, your tongue is a very, very good indicator of quality food. And by the way, you can actually calibrate your tongue using this instrument and you can actually use this instrument to compare the produce produced by different farms or from different stores or the increase in quality of your own produce. And I have a bit of a technical question based on what you said there in the beginning about the lack of change in your uh, raspberries and blueberries and the effects on photosynthesis leading you to think it was a boron deficiency. What made you think that was the case and the proof then in your soil test? Um, so the, the whole idea of a boron deficiency was int- using a refractometer. Uh, that's in a few books, but it was really introduced to me by John several years ago, many years ago, actually. And then you can apply boron in several different ways. Again, I'll refer to the index of elemental analysis done on the fermented plant juices and the other amendments in my book. And you can just look at the boron column and you can see that many of these things have boron in them. So you're applying it when you apply the mineral amendments. And also borax is a rock dust from, I think it's borax, Utah, and that has about 11% boron in it. But that's in a rock dust form, and that has to be digested by the soil before it can get to the plant. And then there are people sometimes use boric acid, which is a a water-soluble form of boron that you can apply as a foliar spray. So these are ways to actually get boron into the soil, into the plant to affect the result we just talked about. And then when you say boron in a rock dust form needs to be digested by the soil, that's the microbiology in the soil breaking down the minerals and making it available to the plants, or by chemicals exuded by plant roots making it available? Yeah, good. That's a great question. Uh, The soil ecosystem is the digestive system of the plant. The plant does feed the soil ecosystem through root exudates, and a large percentage of the energy created by photosynthesis is uh, fed to the soil biology. And the plant selects the soil biology that it wishes to propagate in uh, an effort to uh, increase the nutrition that that plant gets. Uh, Once it increases populations of specific biology, it increases the amount of mineral nutrients that are available uh, by tenfold or more. So yeah, that's, that's the plant doing its thing. When you refer to the soil ecosystem, Is that both the micro and macrobiology that's in the soil? So like, as the worms eat through the soil and leave their castings, then that's feeding bacteria that breaks down these minerals and produces a wide range of chemicals and minerals that are then available to the plants? Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, maybe it's worth just touching on the diversity in the soil. There's bacteria, uh, fungi, fungi, and archaea. And we only know the names of about 10% of the bacteria and fungi that are in the soil, never mind what their interaction and functions are. And then there's archaea, which was identified as a a life form to be added to the uh, kingdom of life that we had. And that happened at the end of the 21st century. 
So when you take those three ideas in aggregate, it becomes really clear that we really know very little about the soil and the biology in the soil, uh, never mind their interactions and how they interact with plants and, and how this system of communication works. That's another thing are the, the strands of mycelium and the fungi form communication networks that not only communicate from plant to plant in, a, in an ecosystem, but also has the ability to redistribute uh, minerals and, and nutrients within that system. So now you have a plant in that system that's actually feeding specific biology locally in an effort to uh, get the minerals it needs. So when I say that the soil is a, a digestive system for the plants and, and the whole ecosystem itself, indeed it is, and it starts with uh, the very small, the biologies, uh, bacteria, fungi, and archaea, and uh, moves up the protozoa and, and up the chain, if you will, the food chain, if you will, up to those earthworms. And so this is an amazingly complex system that we know essentially very, very little about. And again, this goes to the idea of when you're adding a fungicide or a pesticide to kill some pathogen, rather than recognizing the fact that that pathogen is there because there's uh, soil is out of balance and it's merely a, a, a question of how do you bring it back into balance, as soon as you start killing things, you're killing things that you really don't know anything about and going into a spiral of demise um, using these, these chemicals. This really feels like a conversation about a holistic versus a reductionist approach to growing food. Because even our most narrow spectrum fungicides, pesticides, and herbicides are likely to be causing the demise of other creatures in our ecosystem. Because we just don't know enough about what's occurring in the complexity of our soils to be aware of what the cascading effects are. And so what you and people like John and Dan are doing is presenting a way to focus on building up our soil, building up our plants. We're increasing the diversity within the soil in our ecosystem, which provides greater resilience and limits the foothold that pathogens or other diseases can have on our plants and what we're growing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and this goes to the intuitive nature of the conversation of growing anything, once you recognize that uh, this is a thriving living environment, the whole idea of killing parts of it is, is just intuitively, it doesn't make any sense. So yeah, this is where intuition and reality meet. And it becomes very easy to understand these concepts because they are so intuitive and they are so uh, based on the thriving of life rather than the, the killing of parts of it. There's no such thing as good and bad bacteria or fungi or anything. It's not good and bad. It's just whether there's too much of it or too little of it and things are out of balance. So the quote unquote bad things have an opportunity to prosper. Well, nature's defined to have those things prosper so that it can break down the garbage that's uh, in the soil or in the plant or wherever it is uh, so that things maintain in a balance. So again, back to the intuitive idea that these pathogens are there for a reason to break down things that are malnourished or, or, or not otherwise doing well. And so when you, again, you take that, as you call it, a holistic approach, it all makes sense. It's all intuitive. And, 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 and one quickly moves to a path of uh, being in the soil and, and nurturing the soil and having your fingers in the soil and your feet in the soil and becoming part of this wonderful ecosystem and this way of life and becoming mindful of all of the things around you. This is where we fell off the track 
far too many of us spend time in a cubicle or in a concrete jungle with, with little appreciation or understanding of, of how it feels to be in a lush garden. And that's where you're using a lot of your plants and the parts that you've harvested but won't eat, like your carrot skins and carrot tops and those other things, and you're turning them into amendments that you can return to the plants directly the following growing season, giving them exactly what it is that they need and use. Yeah, that's such a great concept, isn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, tomatoes, for instance, uh, I, um, at the end of the season, everybody's got all those tomatoes laying around. They got hit by a frost or they, they otherwise got et by insects or whatever demise they might have. One realizes that there's all these tomatoes kicking around. Now, in nature, uh, they'll fall on the soil and then go into the soil. And in time, they will help nurture the soil. The other thing is that if you recognize that tomato has the seeds in it and that tomato is everything that seed needs to grow another really, really healthy tomato. So again, intuitively speaking, once you recognize that, why not take those tomatoes and ferment them with uh, organic brown sugar and or even just the leaf mold in the, in the woods and create a solution that is the quintessential thing that tomatoes need and want to grow. Now you have a product, if you, if you make a fermented plant juice with organic brown sugar, you have a shelf-stable product that you're going to dilute 1,000 or 500 to 1 in order to foliar spray your tomato. So the next year comes around, you know your soil's not optimal, both mineral or biologically, but once that tomato comes out of the ground, you can foliar spray the tomato through the leaf, these minerals that tomatoes need. There's no buying different parts of things in a store and mixing them up in order to get the right proportions. The plant has already done that for you. And you have an amendment, a, a mineral and, and with all kinds of stuff in an amendment that you can apply directly to the tomato on a, on a regular basis. And so now you, can, you have the opportunity to affect the tomato on the short term as you build up the soil on the long term to give it the nutrition it needs to grow a really healthy tomato. With these dilute amendments, how often can you apply them? Are they something you can use every day as part of our watering cycle? Or do you have a different, as-needed approach? Yeah, that's a really great question. And, and the answer is, uh, this is where the experimentation part of this kind of thing uh, goes out. There was a, a, um, an example given, I saw 10 years ago or more, where I believe it was, it might have been Carrie Reams who uh, sprayed an amendment on a bean plant and was able to have that bean plant go through its entire cycle of growth, fruit, and uh, senescence in like 21 days. So it becomes clear that plants are receptive to mineral uh, applications. The key is that it needs to be done in a manner of consistency. Um, once you start applying a mineral amendment to a plant, the plant becomes used to it. It, beca it becomes reliant on it. And so as soon as you stop that amendment program, then you will see different results. A real great example of this is when people put nitrogen on their fields to provide plants with nitrogen. Well, once that plant realizes that it's getting nitrogen from an external source, then it will no longer exude, exudates into the soil to feed the bacteria, archaea, and fungi that fix nitrogen in the soil. 
And so it no longer is producing its own needs, if you will. And then when that nitrogen source ends, it doesn't have the structure, the digestive system and the structure to provide itself with that nitrogen and the plant will suffer accordingly. So applying these amendments to plants uh, on a regular basis is important. And then you also mentioned as needed. Well, I just mentioned the example of the cucumber that I realized wasn't flowering and needed a phosphorus application. The other one is uh, my potatoes, uh, and I'll, I'll monitor my potatoes. And if I see a potato bug on my potatoes, I recognize that, oh, okay, things are getting worse here, and I need to provide some minerals to my potatoes. So I might provide, in fact, I, know, not might, I would provide a foliar spray of a uh, very broad spectrum mineral component at that time in order to increase the health of the potato plant and then literally watch the, uh, the potato beetles that were threatening to eat it go away. And this goes back to what you mentioned earlier and has been a running theme of our conversation so far, that being an active part of our local ecosystem, we can see and respond to these changes quickly. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's no substitute for, for your presence in, in a garden. And, and, you know, when you start observing things like that, um, it becomes a thrill. Let's see, what was the latest thrill? So I was out underneath my grape arbor the other day, and I was mixing some solutions up to drench some flowers and uh, watching the song sparrows come into the canopy and eating the June bugs. And I thought, wow, no wonder I don't have many June bugs up there. Or I was uh, um, harvesting some dill the other day, and there was a swallowtail caterpillar on the dill plant and I looked at it closely and I realized that there was a stink bug that was eating the caterpillar from the top and just seeing this part of the ecosystem take place was just fascinating. Or seeing a uh, tomato hornworm on a tomato plant and you look closely and all of a sudden there are these white pods on the back of the hornworm and you're realizing those are the wasp larvae that are living off the tomato hornworm. And just seeing all of these different processes in the garden is just fascinating and, and brings beauty and life to the process of being a gardener. And mentioning that interaction of the different parts of your garden, I remember the first time I ever saw a tomato hornworm covered with those little cocoons, and then looking over and seeing that my fennel was covered in those little wasps, and realizing that I'd finally created the right environment for the kind of integrated pest management that I'd read and studied about for so long. And here it was, finally in action. And it's one of the things you write about are the IMOs, those indigenous microorganisms. And it was years ago that I interviewed Jeff Lowenfels, who wrote a blurb for your book, and was one of the first interviews for the show. And it was through his work as the author of Teeming with Microbes that I first became aware of the role of microorganisms in the soil. It was fascinating talking to him then. But since it's been so long since I had him on the show, could you talk about your experiences with IMOs and this other way that we can integrate microbiology into our management and garden plan? So the, the first introduction to these ideas was the mineral component, but it quickly moved to the biological component. And I was searching for ways to try and uh, invoke that. And the first exercise was recognizing that plants are covered with biology, the, the the leaf surfaces, the root surfaces, that everything is just covered with biology. And it was simply taking the plants and putting them in a bucket of rainwater, stirring it, and then recognizing that that biology was suspended in the water 
and then using that water as a biological source to stimulate the, the soil. That was a great exercise. And then finding the IMO 1, 2, and 3, and 4 uh, recipes in the Korean natural farming world was a next step. And, and recognizing how diverse the biology and the flora of the forest was in the, in the leaf mold and being able to capture it and to ferment it, make it shelf-stable in a refrigerator, and then being able to propagate it in wheat bran and then mixing it with soil and having this amazing product that you could uh, then apply to the, to the garden to provide both a mineral and a biological amendment was, was really fascinating. And, and the power of that amendment uh, is just amazing as well. And then moving to one of the ideas in a Jadam Korean natural farming book where you can short circuit the whole thing by just taking the handful of leaf mold from the forest floor and putting it in a bucket with some boiled potatoes and kneading it up and then having a bucket just thriving with biology and applying that directly. Those, th that was a sequence of learnings for me relative to biology. And then the next thing is when you apply it, I had some places that were mulched and the mulch had been, I'll call it stodgy. So when you watered it, the water just hit the mulch and then just slid off to the sides. And then uh, applying the leaf mold biology to that area. And then all of a sudden you can't put enough water into the soil. It just sucks it right up. And then recognizing that one of the challenges in these gardening practices is having enough carbon in the soil to feed all of this life. That was just a really amazing thinking and, and learning to now recognize, okay, I need this carbon in the soil to feed the biology. And once you get all that carbon in the soil, you're creating humus, which becomes uh, something that'll affect your cation exchange capacity. And now you're off to the races. You're, you're in a different world compared to, as we referred to earlier, the organic by neglect idea. The whole idea of, of increasing the exchange capacity of the ions in the soil by facilitating uh, huge amounts of biology that are just going to chow down the, all the carbon you could possibly put on the garden. And now you're getting into the idea of sequestering carbon and how large-scale agriculture can have such a large effect on it. And, and again, we're back to these intuitive ideas. It just makes sense. It's just so, all of a sudden it becomes so obvious that these are just fascinating, great ideas. And you just have to wonder, why aren't we aware of this? Why isn't the, this the mainstream? of agriculture and these ideas. And with everything you've shared with us so far today, Nigel, is there anything else you'd like to add to the conversation before we draw this to a close? I think that as we live in, in, in times of unrest and for many people, there's, there's just this idea of confusion all around us. It's everywhere we turn, it's confusing. Uh, uh, the information is confusing. What are you going to do next is confusing. And, and I'd argue that the garden is one of the places that is not confusing and offers a solace in, in ideas and thinking and peace and also mindfulness. Uh, when you start thinking about growing your own food and then get into these types of thinkings and these types of exercises, I think it provides clarity to much of the conflict in the world around us. And I would encourage everybody to 
start to grow small amounts of food. During World War II, Victory Gardens produced a huge percentage of the amount of food in this country. And I think it's about time we moved back into that direction, uh, not only because the need for high quality food is, is so dire, but also because these sorts of activities offer a grounding and a clarity in what is otherwise a very confusing world. Thank you for that, Nigel, and for adding your voice to the breadth of permaculture knowledge and joining me today for an interview on the Permaculture Podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate it. And that was Nigel Palmer. You can find more about Nigel, his book, and work with the Institute of Sustainable Nutrition at tiosn.com. You'll, of course, find a link to that and other resources in the show notes. His book is published by Chelsea Green Publishing at chelseagreen.com. A longtime partner with the show, we've worked together to bring you a copy of Nigel's recipe for vinegar extractions. You'll find a link to the PDF in the show notes. Also in cooperation with Nigel and Chelsea Green, I have a copy of Nigel's book to give away. If you're interested, send an email to show at thepermaculturepodcast.com with the subject Garden Amendments to enter. If you're a Patreon supporter and are interested, include your Patreon username for two entries in the giveaway. I'll pick a winner in mid-November. Gardening can be incredibly wasteful, from all the packaging and plastic, to harmful to our environment through the overuse of chemicals, from nitrogen-heavy fertilizers that run off into our waterways, to the pesticides and herbicides that, even when narrow-spectrum, kill a wide variety of soil life. In our waters, many of these chemicals that seem to improve our gardens and growth of food kill fish and amphibians. I like Nigel's DIY approach to sustainable fertilization, fertigation, and improvement of life in the soil because it dispenses with those harms while using and reusing items we can find in our local environment, often from our pantry, garden, or own backyard, while aligning with so many of the principles of permaculture. We can observe the rise of a disease or pest issue and interact with a creative response via the homemade remedy. We catch and store energy by creating tinctures, extracts, and ferments while they are available, and create a form we can keep refrigerated or on a shelf for later use. We obtain a yield by increasing the health, vitality, and nutrition of our plants. Though not written explicitly as a permaculture book, Nigel provides a holistic approach to Zone 1 and Zone 2 plant and soil management. But those are just my thoughts after this conversation and reading Nigel's book. After hearing this interview with Nigel Palmer, what are your thoughts? Leave a comment in the show notes or email me, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. In addition to the podcast, I'm also here to help you find the resources necessary to bring your vision of permaculture into the world. You can now schedule a one on one consultation or more casual, meandering conversation if you prefer at calendly.comslash permaculture. If you enjoy this episode, consider donating to the 10th anniversary of the podcast Summer to Fall Fundraiser. These annual fundraisers allow me to work on long-term projects to improve the show. Last year, I moved the podcast to a long-term web host with three years of prepaid hosting. This year, I'd like to upgrade the computer where I edit the show and purchase equipment to produce video interviews and site tours once the world recovers from COVID. To go along with this fundraiser, for anyone donating $50 or more to this campaign, I'll send you a USB drive with every currently available interview, monologue, and discussion from the first decade 
of the Permaculture Podcast. That includes the first show from 2010, all the way up to the 10th anniversary episode out on October 10th of this year. Just include your name and address in the note with your donation. If you work in audio or video production and have used gear you'd be willing to donate to this latest endeavor, I'm open to that as well. You can donate online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or by mail to my new mailing address, Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. Until the next time, feed yourself, your soil, and your garden from local sources while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.